0: Hello, good evening, and welcome to the TNT Show. I'm John Drummond, and I'm your host for the next 60 minutes, and these will be exciting minutes. Now, you know it's been another great day for British democracy. Uh, Keir Starmer, no less, has decided to wrap himself in the Union flag while appealing to a sense of patriotism. Now, that is not for you, of course, because you may well be some sort of dreadful, nasty nationalist. Well, of course, he is a true patriot, as someone once said, "Quotes: patriotism is the last refuge of a scoundrel, close quotes. Thanks for joining us this evening. Tonight we are talking to health and well-being experts and also a really, really uh, rounded individual who has a, a, a remit that extended right across a whole range of topics. You're really going to enjoy the show tonight. I can absolutely guarantee it. Philippa Whitford, MP, is joining us tonight. We'll be talking about the Constitution We'll be talking about Europe, as well as COVID. The TNT, as you know, stands for The Nation Talks. So in many respects, this is your show. And we're free. So no licence, no problem. We're here for you. Now, to our guest tonight, The Nation Talks to Philippa Whitford. Thanks so much for joining us, Philippa. How are you?
1: Uh, I'm fine, John, and and you're very welcome. I've had a, well, as everyone has had, a very kind of quiet, home-based Christmas and New Year. But... To be honest, after the last two years, um, actually, for me, that was just exactly what I needed. Uh, I can't say I'm looking forward to going back to Westminster next Monday.
0: How would you compare the conditions in Westminster and London generally with those in in Scotland? Because we have so much conflicting evidence here about people say Scotland is much worse than the rest of the UK, Scotland is much better. What's your feeling?
1: Well, obviously, it depends on a lot of uh, precisely what it is you're looking at. I mean, London is clearly a, uh, an incredibly wealthy city, but equally a, a city itself based on inequality, uh, with with you know poverty and obscene wealth sitting ear by jowl. I mean, for me at the moment, Westminster is a challenge in both uh, directions. One is COVID. I was a shielder last year um and well the year before I keep getting I keep forgetting we've moved on to yet another year um but in 2020 um uh, I was officially uh, a shielder and therefore the fact that we had so many Conservative MPs refusing to wear masks even now when it is the rule of the house about a third of them don't don't particularly follow direction rules or physical distancing or anything else Um, and and of course What you're talking about is is London is very high for COVID. It's ONS estimate, that's the Office of National Statistics, estimate that one in 10 people in London have COVID, which means it's very difficult to avoid. And of course, not only are we in the House of Commons, which has had lots of MPs uh, infected, but we have to do a lot of traveling to get there. And then you're going to send 600 odd MPs back to where to their constituencies, perhaps carrying uh, Omicron with them. So to me, that isn't a terribly uh, sensible approach, I have to say. And I, I find it bizarre that almost every organization on the planet has learnt from COVID, has learned how to work virtually, how to work in a hybrid or blended way, and yet the House of Commons refuses to keep any of the learning whatsoever. Um, we could vote digitally. We could speak in debates last April in May and Rees-Mogg shut it down at the end of May. And we've had people excluded with COVID, people excluded because they were shielders. We've seen my colleague Amy Callaghan excluded because they don't even offer a proxy vote if you've got a recognised illness. So, you know, it's just that we are going back to the old ways. We refuse to learn anything. And I find that quite depressing. It could have become a much more inclusive parliament for people with chronic illness or disability who might have chosen to stand as MPs if we'd actually kept some of the virtual arrangements. So so some of it is is very much the, the COVID and some of it is just the attitude in Westminster at the moment. It's not a very, I'm sure you've all seen it on the telly, it's not a very pleasant place
0: uh, for us these days. How would you sum up your reaction? Because you've now been at Westminster for how long now? Six and a half years. Looking back over those six and a half years, Philippa, what what, what particularly salient things that you look at and say, oh, that just makes me shake my head, if not bristle in anger.
1: Well, I think that, you know, to me, the three parliaments I've been in, the 15 to 17, um, 17 to 19, and then since 2019, the parliaments have been quite different. Um, In particular, working on a cross-party basis has become harder in that a lot of the you know, you might have called them gentleman Tories, whether they were male or female, um, long-standing MPs, often very cross-party uh, based, were were put out um, in 2019. Obviously, unless you were willing to sign up to a No Deal Brexit, you couldn't stand as a candidate. So people like Dominic Grieve and others. And what we have since 2019, and particularly since Boris Johnson became both Conservative leader and Prime Minister is it's a very aggressive parliament now, and not just in the chamber, you know, not just kind of in the jousting arena that is the House Commons chamber, but quite a lot of it throughout the House. And, the you know, in the past, I mean, I remember when I made my maiden speech and I got little letters of congratulations um, from MPs from lots of different parties, which surprised me, I have to say. And I found that on select committees and all party groups, We work a lot um, on something that we're really interested in, regardless of what our general politics is. And that has just become harder to get, you know, a Labour MP, an SNP MP, and a a Conservative MP to all be working together on one project. And that is very much since 2019. Um, And and therefore, it's harder to get things done. I would say the thing that shocks me the most um, is just the lives. Um, And, you know, I'm sorry, I mean, the Speaker isn't here tonight to shout at me, but, you know, we've all seen the lies, you know, and they come out of the Prime Minister's mouth without any censorship whatsoever. When they're fact-checked, it's clearly shown to be not the case, but yet that is the approach all the time. Um, And I find it bizarre that you can lie in the House of Commons, you just simply can't ever accuse anyone else. Of lying in the House of Commons. Now, I understand all that. I understand the the need to have sort of dignified debate and not finger-pointing and shouting. I mean, it would just be unmanageable. But yet there is a complete lack of respect for the Parliament, for all that talk of parliamentary sovereignty. This current government do not respect the Parliament at all and lie to it, dismiss it, ignore it. And what we're seeing is, that accountability being taken away at the same time as there is other legislation against the Electoral Commission, against protest, against judicial review, all of which is just to remove accountability so that this government can actually get away with doing what they like. And, And that really frightens me because I don't think the media are reporting it enough. I don't think the public are awake enough to where their rights are being just chiselled away and it's so wrapped up in legalese that they're they're not conscious of what's actually happening. So I think it's right now is the worst time um, and it's actually quite a frightening time to think about what direction the United Kingdom is going to take.
0: Well, that's very interesting you should say that because one of the questions we had tonight quoted me a a piece from uh, George Monbiot uh, uh, from the Guardian on the 21st of December last year. And he says, this is proper police state stuff. The last minute amendments crowbarred by the government into the police crime sentencing and courts bill are a blatant attempt to stifle protest of the kind you might expect in Russia. Uh, Pretty Patel, the Home Secretary, shoved 18 extra pages into the bill after it passed through the Commons and after the second reading in the House of Lords. It looks like a deliberate ploy to avoid effective parliamentary scrutiny. And yet in most of the media, there's a resounding silence.
1: Uh, Absolutely. I mean, this has become a bit of a technique. Um, I mean, I spent three months on the health and care bill. We had 22 bill committee sessions. And yet the, the added clause that meant that any support someone had towards paying for social care in their family wouldn't be counted towards the cap was brought in exactly that, like that at the last minute in the House of Commons. Um, so we seem to be seeing that kind of disrespect happening all the time that they are, that I mean, it would be normal to add amendments, for governments to add amendments, and some of them would be late on, but not of that scale, and not when you're already saying that the House of Lords has passed its phase, because when it comes back to us, We don't get that, it's not like we get the chance to re examine it. So they've now obviously finding ways of really putting things into bills to have almost no scrutiny. I mean, the lack of respect from this government to the parliament. Now, obviously, a lot of that bill is around devolved policing and courts, which are separate in Scotland. But if we had constituents who are marching in London, whether about the environment, whether about independence, whether about Brexit, whatever it is our constituents would be subject to these kind of anti-protest laws and and to me this is all part of a bigger picture that I think should be really concerning people about the underlying removal of accountability and removal of debate from the political scene uh, at Westminster.
0: I mean I've raised this a number of times in my column in the in the uh, Sunday National in which uh, you know you could describe the British Constitution as whatever the government of the day with a working majority says it is. That was always its major flaw. Uh, that plus the fact that sovereignty is vested in an institution makes it open to abuse. It's always been wide open to abuse. It's just that this present lot have decided to exercise that abuse to an extent that nobody ever, ever believed any self-respecting Executive would do.
1: That's the if, thing. I mean, the, you know, the, it's all been convention and gentlemen's agreements yeah. and Erskine May, the ways to behave and what was acceptable. But particularly from the prorogation in 2019, uh, which uh, obviously Joanna was part of leading that case for um, to show that that was illegal. I mean, that was such a drastic and bizarre move to just shut Parliament down because you don't want to argue with them. Um, should have been a real shot across the bows and and warning shot for everyone of of what was coming. And and obviously that lack of any constitutional um, dependency also affects us in that, you know, with a stroke of a pen, any government can shut down the Scottish Parliament, can change everything. So there's nothing that is guaranteed, because no government can bind a future government. So whether it's the Human Rights Act or anything else, none of us can actually now count on, oh, well, we're safe with that. And I think the direction of travel is so radical that people would be right to be concerned about that. Uh,
0: The the obvious question that people are are raising, uh, Philippa, is this. If it's such a mess, why do you stay there and effectively endorse it? Why don't you just quit and come home and say, to heck with you, we're not gonna put up with this anymore.
1: Uh, Oh, I'd be very tempted. If if I didn't have to go next Monday, I'd be a very happy bunny. But um, we're not an abstentionist party. I think if you're going to do that, you need to stand on that basis. People need to vote for you on the basis that they will not have any direct physical representation in the parliament. I don't think you can take votes as representing people, and then just decide that you're not going to. And Sinn Féin, as you know, don't take their seats. And what I saw during the five years of Brexit evolving was that Northern Ireland did not have a proper voice in the House of Commons, and the only voice that was there was the DUP, which is, you know, very much on one side of the argument. And, you know, had Sinn Féin been there, the the hung parliament of Theresa May Actually, their seven votes would often have swung Brexit votes for us to to have moved away from the hard Brexit that we ended up with. So for me, for us to not go, you suddenly have six Scottish Tory MPs who say, we are the voice of Scotland in Westminster. And of course, we can't outvote the rest of the MPs uh, at Westminster. That's why we need independence. It's as simple as that. But if we are not there then the majority view of Scotland on issues like COVID, on issues like Brexit, on issues like social justice, which go way beyond precisely which party you vote for, simply wouldn't be there. Um, so to me, it, you, if you want to be an abstentionist party, you need to make that clear before you have an election. You can't just decide not to go and leave the entire stage uh,
0: to, you know, Douglas Ross's cruise on a similar tack. What do you make of uh, Keir Stammer's comments about he he will not have any dealings with the SNP before, during, or after the election? And the reason I ask that question is just based on simple arithmetic, Philippa. His chances of getting a working majority of the kind that would be necessary, i.e. a true working majority, uh, seem to be, even allowing for the fact that Boris Johnson will probably be defenestrated Sometime soon, before the Tories decide to cut and run. Uh, nonetheless, I suspect he will still end up with a, maybe, if he's lucky, a double-figure majority. Um, so you'll need SNP support. You'll need 59 MPs, somewhere on the line, uh, to form a government that would actually be effective, uh, i.e., be in office for anyone about 10 seconds. Uh, so, what, what, what's your view of that? Is that just posturing, or does he? Do you think he genuinely? takes the advice from people like Gordon Brown when it comes to constitutional politics.
1: Well, I'm sure he probably does listen to Gordon Brown and and Anna Sarwar. He certainly doesn't appear to pay an awful lot of attention to Scotland in general or reading the mood or the views of Scotland, because certainly his last um, kind of red, white and blue speech and now this red, white and blue speech very much is uh, how dare you vote the wrong way in Scotland your duty is to return at least 40 Labour MPs to give us a starter for 10. Uh, Not about what we'll offer you or what we'll change for you. It's just you need to vote for us, you know, for our reasons. Um, And that narrative hasn't changed. I mean, in in the last one, he didn't actually mention Scotland at all. Here, he bizarrely echoed the phrase better together, which I would have thought most Labour activists or supporters in Scotland is is just a phrase they don't want to hear uttered. So that shows his kind of complete lack of insight. But at the same time, he was saying, oh, well, you know, we'll not stand, we'll not target seats the Lib Dems are aiming for uh, to get the Tories out. But actually the majority party in Scotland that has won uh, every election since the referendum um we won't have any truck with them so what does that say that says to scottish voters if you vote what you want if you vote who you choose and who you've chosen in election after election we will make sure they have zero influence in the uk government so to me he bizarrely is is actually making the case for independence because you know the the main party in scotland will be disregarded. And I think you also have to realise it's not the Keir Starmer's Labour Party have suddenly soared up the rankings. It's the fact that the Tories have flushed themselves down the toilet in the last few months. And sad to say by, you know, whether the elections in May 24 or even May 23, um, you can't count on Partygate still being the thing that's holding them back. They may not have Boris Johnson as a leader, they may have someone else, or the compliant uh, broadcast and, well, more print media um, will simply be doing the press releases that they want to gloss over that. You know, We saw the outrage over Dominic Cummings, but that eventually faded away. So you know, the, the, the concern would be that you know, he's sitting back going, oh, yes, we're leading now. But what policies? What is it Labour stands for? What do they believe in? No idea. Absolutely no idea. And certainly no offering to Scotland.
0: Elliot Bullman, I'll be covering this in the, in the Constitution column in the Sunday National over the next two or three weeks. One of the confusing things here, uh, and I would, I would welcome, uh, if anyone has any contacts in the Labour Party, particularly in Keir Starmer's office, I would welcome a response to this if they're watching tonight, and it's this. You could be very much in favour of a redistribution of wealth Uh, and all the policies that the old Labour Party was formed at its its creation to address. But you can do all of that without wrapping yourself in the flag. This seems to me to be a a distortion, maybe based upon, it's certainly not based upon polling, because as you say, either you look at the private polling or you look at the real polling, i.e. in elections, and it tells you as eloquently as you could ever desire that the Labour Party is not popular in terms of policies. And to add to that this extraordinary notion that saying to people in England, uh, the Labour Party failed you and we will change, but saying to people in Scotland, uh, the Labour Party has failed because of you and you need to change, is bizarre. It, it just doesn't compute doesn't make any sense. A five-year-old could see the flaw in that, but he has persisted. And this notion of wrapping the flag around what might inevitably be at some stage progressive policies just strikes me as totally bizarre. It, it's like you, you you might put together a decent offering and then you, you wrap it up in some old bits of paper that have no relevance anymore. And you try and sell that to somebody, it just strikes me as bizarre. Which leads me on to my next question. A lot of people are recently seen, it's been raised in the National, this idea of a three-option referendum, should a referendum take place, with Devo Max as a choice. Uh, we've had a whole bunch of people tonight asking what your views are on that.
1: OK, I'm going to stick to polite language here. Um, a a three part referendum is is tactically difficult to do. So do you have it in two stages? Do you want status quo or change? If you want change, do you want A or B? You know, it, it, if you just have pick one of these three, the, the risk is you get a third, a third and a third. So, you know, what is it people want? But for me, with regards to our future referendum, I'm sorry, we were offered Devo Max in 2014. The vow, Gordon Brown, all the rest of it was Scotland would, you know, have the powers after the Smith Commission. We, It would be like federalism, everything other than, you know, defence and foreign policy. Now, I have to point out, defence means we still can't get rid of Trident, which a majority of Scots want. And foreign policy means we'd still have been stuck with Brexit. So, you know, that's that's what kind of undermines devolution in principle. But to talk about a solution being, we will promise you more devolution, as we were promised seven years ago, when in actual fact devolution is being unwound. The Internal Market Act drives a coach and horses through devolution. The fact that our view of Europe was completely disregarded drives a coach and horses through devolution. And we're seeing it, I mean, simple things like the funding, the loss of EU funding and supposedly replacing it with the levelling up fund and in future the the shared prosperity fund. Now, the levelling up fund is a competition. So councils are spending and squandering money, writing bids to try and win some of this funding. Two thirds of them have had nothing even though they have maybe spent all that time, energy and funding to do it. Whereas under the EU settlement, all of our councils got money. Some got more, some got less, depending on their social need, you know, employability needs, the kind of regional development, etc. But here you're pitching one area against another. And if you look at the lists that were being prioritised, it was obvious pork barrel politics that the, the UK government will choose where the money goes to, which projects are picked, and we can already see what that is going to mean. And the Scottish Parliament, which did get to set strategy for European funding, completely cut out of that. And if you go back to the Internal Market Act, you know, if we wanted to raise the minimum unit price on alcohol, that could suddenly come within the scope of the Internal Market Act. If the Internal Market Act had already been in place, We might not have been allowed to do minimum unit pricing. We might not have been allowed to do the smoking ban. The Welsh might not have been allowed to bring in uh, a charge for plastic bags. You know, it's the devolved governments that have tended to be radical on public health, on environmental improvement, on well-being, on social justice. And actually what we're seeing is our ability to do that, is being undermined. Our parliament is being hollowed out. So to me, any talk about a Devo Max or devolution, more devolution as a serious proposal is just dead in the water. Because what you're saying is what they choose to give us is what we will have to accept. And therefore all the power remains at Westminster. The only thing that gives you control over what is important to you is independence where we control our own institutions, we control our own future decisions. Devolution is not respected by the Conservatives and is, is frankly, you know, it's bizarre, as they say, don't interrupt your opponents when they're making a mistake, but that they are attacking what you might see as the middle ground. Devolution is supported hugely within Scotland. The Parliament is supported hugely, and yet that's under attack. And therefore, people will eventually face a choice, a return to direct rule or independence. That's the choice that we have. And Max is just a, a complete red herring, as far as I'm concerned.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting that at a time when the Tories are exercising, as you say, through the internal market, the hollowing out of, of the Scottish Parliament, at the same time, Peter Duncan is calling for independence for the Tory party in Scotland. <laughs> is, is
1: the irony meter is off the scale with that kind of thing, yeah. You, you have to laugh. I mean, that, uh, you know, whether it's some Labour activists or particularly the Tories uh, saying they want an independent uh, Scottish Tory party, you know, what, what can you say? You've made our case. Now can we have Uh, a totally independent Scottish government with all the powers and levers to deliver what the people of Scotland need.
0: I've heard these rumours for quite some time, and I've heard of various blue groups who are looking at how to reposition the Tories after independence, all kept beneath the radar, of course, but this seems to be somebody sort of popping their head up above above the parapet for a moment just to see what the lie of the land is like, but it does seem to me there might be some deeper malaise amongst the Scottish Tories than we perhaps uh, can see on the surface.
1: There, there will always be a, a range across the natural political spectrum from, you know, left to right. Will always be there in Scotland. So there would always be a party uh, like the Conservatives, whatever it is they would be called in an independent Scotland. Because, people, and and for the Labour Party in Scotland, actually their only future is if they were to actually support independence and be a social democratic party within that. There is a group called the Yes Tories. When I started campaigning back in 2013, uh, Yes Troon had a Conservative member. You know, the, the idea that there are not Conservatives who can see an attraction in independence, and particularly the shock of Brexit, when most people within the Conservative Party in Scotland wanted to remain, Um, You know, all of that has moved the the tectonic plates. And I think the behaviour of Boris Johnson and his cabinet now is making a lot of people in uh, the Conservative Party in Scotland very, very uncomfortable.
0: Yeah, yeah, I I, I would agree with that. and It it, it does seem to me that there's a certain disquiet. There's an interesting point here. It's a point I put to Kenny Ferguson, um, who's a keen advocate of Devo Max and has written about it, uh, more recently in the Times. Why isn't there a right-wing Scottish independence party, do you think? Because if well, you look across the spectrum in other countries, it's invariable that there's a, a right-wing uh, independence party somewhere in the mix. It may not be the majority, uh, but it's always there. In Scotland, it doesn't exist. Why is that, do you think?
1: well i think that i think it depends on what the angle is that your independence movement is coming from and ours is not actually about being anti anybody else i mean despite the telegraph and others claiming that it's all about being anti english it isn't and english scots for yes would 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 certainly lay that to rest it's about self-determination. And if you're looking at countries who are campaigning to have self-determination, then they often don't particularly have a a right-wing, you know, nationalist party, uh, if you like. Whereas if your nationalism is about excluding others or othering others, uh, like the Alternative for Deutschland in in Germany and, and, you know, obviously Le Pen's uh, party in, in, in France, that is not about independence for Germany or France, it's about excluding others, um, or, you know, minimizing them, keeping them out, etc. And actually, that's more the policy that we see at Westminster. It was obviously the UKIP view, and David Cameron to appease them in 2015 promised the referendum. And in actual fact, the Conservative Party have turned into UKIP. So, you know, he didn't defend them from UKIP. But in Scotland, As in, you know, other parts of the world where it's just about being able to control your own future, having your own democracy and and being able to hold that democracy to account. So being able to vote in your government and being able to vote them back out if you're not happy with them, then, you know, that doesn't necessarily engender in the same way as we say, you know, when people attack us, the Scottish Nationalist Party and call us Nazis and, you know, all the other horrible things that they say, we're not trying to keep people out of Scotland. We welcome people in Scotland. You know, I'm not Scottish. My husband is, uh, well, he's a very old new Scot in that he's German. Um, You know, we welcome people here. And, And that difference, I think, means that it doesn't generate necessarily the same kind of, you know, right wing, we want a pure, you know, pure race of Scots, eh, yeah. all in their kilts, etc. So I, I think I think we're not unique in that. I, I, yeah. I think you would find that also in other countries where it's about self-determination for an area to achieve independence, as opposed to countries where they're actually trying to keep people out.
0: Yeah, I mean, I have to commend you. That's the best answer I've had. And I've now asked, seriously. I've now asked at least a dozen people, and the common listen to this. This is the commonest answer I get. Well, the SNP is such a broad church that it accommodates all views, and I'm thinking, what nonsense is this?
1: <laughs> I have yet to hear in the SNP uh, an anti-immigrant, anti foreigner uh, pure-blood and soil view. So I, I would be quite shocked at that answer. I have to say.
0: Moving from your sublime answer to. This rather less sublime instance. I, I want to take you back, if I may, to your time on the uh, Health uh, Select Committee. And someone has very kindly sent me a video of you questioning Jeremy Hunt. I hope I've got his last name right. <laughs> asked him about the direction he is taking the NHS. And, uh, and the concern is a number of people have actually uh, called us tonight to express the same concern, which is that. They feel that the NHS is going to be privatised. They also feel that the Internal Market Bill was act was necessary in order to ensure that the privatisation of the NHS would include Scotland as well, because any prospective purchaser of parts of the NHS, because obviously they're not going to sell all of it, they would only sell the bits that were the low hanging fruit, as it were, because that's what makes business sense. People's concern is that that's the direction of travel. And the, the clip that I was sent was you quizzing Jeremy Hunt, and he started talking about Kaiser Permanente as being a model. You know, you don't have to look too closely at Kaiser Permanente to see that that's maybe, maybe the least appetizing model you could ever conceive of for the NHS. Would you, would you agree with that? How were you satisfied were you, with the answers to the questions that you put to him at that time?
1: I, I was rarely satisfied with the answers <laughs> that I ever got from Jeremy Hunt on the select committee. Uh, I think he was very glad to see the back of me when I start stopped doing it, it has to be said. But the, I mean, obviously I've just spent three months on the health and care bill, which was very much put forward as this is an English bill. Um, and, and therefore, you know, e- even our group, it was kind of, oh, do you really need to cover this? This is this is just England. And, and I'm kind of going, no, I'm going to go through this with a fine tooth comb. Um, and there's different aspects of it um you know there were things that it did do that reversed some of what was terrible in the social care act of 2012 and it was that act that got me into politics into politics with a capital p in that i was following what lansley was talking about from about 2011 in sheer disbelief that anyone could think fragmenting the nhs in england and creating competitiveness instead of collaboration was a smart idea Um, so that was very much what I talked about and obviously the threat of that to Scotland in that you know if they decide to force us by saying no money for health unless we do you do what we tell you then obviously they would be able to do that and obviously we're lucky enough in Scotland that we still have a unified Public, publicly delivered NHS. And even though at this time of terrible backlog, it will be that health boards will buy in HIP operations or whatever from private hospitals, we have never given bits of our NHS away to be run by private companies. We haven't given away GP practices, we haven't given away hospitals or community facilities. That is very much what has happened in England. And it isn't just that NHS hospitals have to compete with Virgin. They have to compete with each other. So you have this constant wasted energy of of hospitals bidding, um, and that's what they've had. And what it did very quickly after it came into effect was that all the hospital trusts in England ended up in debt. I mean, billions across the NHS in debt. And also what you started to see was performance going down, A&E performance going down, cancer performance going down. And because you've suddenly got players who are in the game for profit, for them to get profit, they have to deliver less. So while, yes, people say, oh yes, but you'll still get free care at the point of need, but you won't get totally free care at the point of need. I mean, England is the only nation where you have to pay prescription charges and today they're raising the age threshold on that so waspy women who are stuck waiting for their pension are going to end up not getting even free prescriptions whereas we've got free prescriptions in scotland many um you know provision of prosthetics or you know equipment you would have to pay for so what you find is people are paying around the edges even if the core surgery or core uh, treatment that they get is free. And what you can certainly see in the data is a rise in private health insurance, private health care, and also um, more people just paying what's called out of pocket. They don't have insurance, but when they're faced with it, they go, let's all club together and get mum herb. Whatever yep. or Hitler yep. or something like that, and you know, an approach I totally understand uh, in in a family taking. So what you're having is more and more um, non governmental money, i.e., private money from individuals going in to pay healthcare in England. So if you look at the OECD figures, the public money going in from the government in England is less than goes in to Scotland. And you've got way more uh, staff who are involved in private care, both through the NHS, but also out with that. And what you now have is that the kind of premium hospitals in England, um, they used to have a limit that they could only make 2% of their income through private patients. That was raised by the Health and Social Care Act to 49%. So suddenly you've got NHS hospitals who now are really actively trying to bring in private patients, which means they will be queue jumping, they will be getting access to different kind of treatment. And you've already got rationing of a lot of treatments that have been made. This is no longer available. Therefore, you actually have to go and pay for it privately. So it's it's kind of snipping away at the edges. Now, while I did welcome that the health and care bill has got rid of what was called section 75, which is that Really, almost any service that could be put out to tender had to be put out to tender. And what we were seeing was year after year, almost half or even occasionally more than half of those contracts going to a private company because they've got a whole team that are, you know, focused on winning contracts. You know, doctors like me in the NHS, you know, we're we're not there to write a business case to go out and bid for work we're there to deliver what is needed. And it is much more cost effective. If you're simply going, the population in that area is 500,000 people. We expect this many breast cancers, this many testicular cancers, this many heart attacks. So this is what we need and you provide it. Whereas what's happened in the health and care bill is it's being sold as, oh, we've reversed the, the 2012 act by getting rid of section 75. But private, hospital, uh, private uh, health companies will be allowed to sit on integrated care partnership boards. Now, the integrated care boards, which is one above that, is rather confusing, they've both got such similar names, would be a bit like a health board. They will make the final decisions, and we finally got agreement that they would be statutory bodies. Whereas in the time of that health select committee clip, It was still sounding as if private companies might be part of them, too. And that would be very much like the American accountable care organizations. So they're not in that. They're not on the final board that will make the decision. But the partnership boards will draw up the strategy for a local area, both in health and social care. And you have private companies are going to be able to be represented on those. And I can't see how that is anything other than a conflict of interest. So rather than individual services being put out to tender, in actual fact, private health has climbed the ladder and will have the ability to influence the decision making and the budget decision making for an entire uh, integrated care board area. And, and I, I just find that is utterly unjustifiable. And the government didn't accept a single amendment, including basic ones that the NHS should be the provider of choice. So yes, there might, you know, there might be a private company who can do X better than we can because they've got some new gadget. But you should have to justify that. It should always start with that care should be provided by the NHS. I mean, what we see is residential mental health care is nearly all delivered by the Priory now. So the NHS, particularly across England, there's very little provision left that isn't run by a private company. And that is what's happened in England. It is the structure itself being handed over and being run by Virgin Care, by Priory, by others, and therefore breaking it apart. And as you say, the Internal Market Act and the, the UK government, wanting to take control over procurement them having control over trade deals all of these things are of real concern as to how they will try to force that into Scotland um, and and the problem is is it isn't just that you need to be looking at prevention and public health so if if we lose the ability to take action against smoking against alcohol against drugs then you know we are not going to be able to improve the health and well-being of our population. And, and one of the other things Keir Starmer b- bizarrely said today is clearly they still plan to take a very hard-nosed approach on drugs instead of moving to a public health approach, which has been evidenced in places like Portugal and elsewhere. Yeah. So to me, you know, Keir Starmer is just wrapping himself in a union flag. He doesn't have policies. He is not winning. It's the Tories are losing. And I, I don't think they have any vision uh, for us here in Scotland at all. And they certainly were not interested in defending us and defending devolution in Scotland and Wales um, from the internal market act.
0: Yeah, poor uh, Mark Dreyford in Wales must be having a torrid time because, you know, every time I watch him, he sounds more nationalist than he did the week before.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, you know, the obviously the support for independence in Wales is still... Uh, long behind Scotland. But I mean, you know, I think people within the Labour Party in Wales seeing how they're being treated by the UK government, but also how they're being treated by the Labour Party based at Westminster must really be questioning, uh, you know, exactly what their future is. Yeah. Um, and and for me, I, you know, frankly, to expect anything good to come from a, a a leader of a party who simply does not recognize our democratic right in Scotland to choose our future as a sovereign people. You know, I'm sorry, you're you're on a hiding to nothing there. There's very little uh, that they can say. And I, I would agree. I mean, Mark Drayford has really ha- has tried to defend Wales and stand up for Wales throughout the COVID pandemic. Obviously, in many things, Scotland and Wales have taken a similar approach. It's Westminster that is out of step rather than us and as you say he must be absolutely tearing his hair out because he's still expected to turn around and say like Anna Sarwar and others up here do Boris Johnson's a disaster but we should still let ourselves be ruled by that kind of a disaster <laughs>
0: Uh, it doesn't make a great deal of sense, does it? To boil it all down and try and summarise it, you, you would probably uh, perhaps agree with the, the notion that as people are, are, are telling us today, they're worried about the future of the Scottish Health Service because of what's happening in the internal market coupled with the uh, health and care bill in the South.
1: Well, when the health and care bill came to committee and I raised different amendments and a lot of them were on the same line, there wasn't even mention of consultation let alone legislative consent for the clauses that would already be applied to Scotland, yeah. such as uh, you know wanting health data and so on. They didn't even have the decency to put that on the face of the bill. And I think we need to look at all supposedly English-only legislation and see if there's any economic aspect to it, any business aspect to it, how can you combine it with the Internal Market Act to suddenly make English-only legislation impact on Scotland. And there are several bits within the Health and Care Act that could do that.
0: Okay, I want to move on, if I may. You were leading on health at Westminster, but you're no longer in that position. You're now moved on. Was that something that you wanted to see happen, or did it just happen some other way?
1: Uh, no, no, I absolutely I wanted it to happen. Um, I mean, I've done I've carried the health brief for six and a half years. I have tried if anyone has watched debates, I've always tried to contribute authoritatively. I mean, I you know it, it's almost forty years that I've been a doctor, so I'm one of the most senior medics in the House of Commons and and I've tried to contribute in that way in debates, even in debates that would not directly impact on Scotland, because frankly, the depth of knowledge across the House of Commons is often pretty shallow, Um, (laughs) and and so I've tried to to do that, particularly over the last two years with COVID. Um, My doctorate was on breast cancer immunology, so I understand the language, and I was following COVID and reading research papers, and frankly, I was just beating my head on the brick wall that was Matt Hancock and is now Sajid Javid and the Prime Minister. I mean, I raised the issue of asymptomatic spread in the middle of last February. I raised the issue of ventilation. You know, I raised the issue of the need for global vaccine equity if we are ever going to bring this thing under control. And frankly, the rudeness, the dismissiveness, the patronizing approach um, has just been a pain in the neck. After the nineteen election, I was also made Europe spokesperson. And the plan already at that point was that I was going to move from health to focus on on Europe. Uh, And that was something I was really looking forward to do. Now, because they wound up the Brexit department, Ian Blackford asked me to at least remain the flag carrier for health, although he had. Created a bigger team, including Martin Day, who who has taken over from me, and and then quite quickly into the COVID pandemic, you said, "Thank God I kept you in health." <laughs> and of course, I've been really busy uh, yeah. with that. I mean, I was back in the NHS in uh, in in the first wave, not in any heroic sense, just in a back room, and but also just dealing with COVID statements and responses, etc. Uh, And my poor husband has tracked the data every day uh, since last spring. So, um, you know, it's all in our home computer here. Um, and, And just I feel that I have really tried with the Health and Care Act, bringing forward amendments that even weren't for Scotland. They were actually for my colleagues in the NHS in England to try and improve the Act. The government isn't interested. They accept no amendments from opposition at all. That is now their their standard approach. And I feel that for Scotland, our future back in Europe is much more important to independence, to my constituents and to our future than just constantly pouring my energies into um, haggling about how they choose to run the NHS in England. Mm-hmm. And, and the problem is when, with COVID occupying so much of my time and, and health in general takes up so much bandwidth in the House Commons there are so many health related debates, even if it's not legislation, um, I couldn't focus on the, the brief of, of, of Europe. And, and I'm really looking forward, uh, particularly when we do get out of COVID and I can start to move around a bit more um, on European outreach. I'm one of our nominees for the Parliamentary Partnership Assembly with the European Parliament. So I'd be looking forward at that engagement. And I think that's much more important for Scotland's future.
0: Okay, that's that's very helpful.
1: One thing, John, that I would say, of course, I mean, as a doctor of 40 years, I still have, you know, a huge interest in health and particularly well-being, Um, you know, looking at, you know, basically the physical, mental, social, economic and environmental well-being of everyone here. And that is, of course, I'm really delighted is is a policy of of the Scottish government. And to me, that well-being approach, so not when we talk about the NHS, we're talking about a national illness service. Whereas what we want is health, and health is not generated by the NHS. It's the housing. It's having enough food. It's your mother having enough food when she was pregnant with you. It's your education. It's the clean air. All of that kind of stuff. And and that's that will still be a, a major interest. And I'm involved in various all-party groups in Westminster. Uh, around health in all policies, around future generations, etc. And I'll still be continuing to do that.
0: In fact, you could argue, couldn't you, that well-being will be even more important as we move out of COVID. Because a lot of people whose well-being, in the conventional sense that we may have recognised that term, in fact, has been severely impacted additionally by the challenge of COVID and dealing with that. People who are in care homes, people who are on their own trying to raise kids, you know, in a confined environment. These are all folks whose well-being seems to me has been impacted by by COVID. In addition to the general condition.
1: I, I mean, absolutely. And what we've seen is that, um, you know, while there was the phrase, oh, COVID will hit everyone equally, we realised that it absolutely didn't. It, right. it highlighted the inequality that is so rife in the UK, and the UK is one of the most unequal countries in, in the world. But I mean, one of the, I mean, we're still absolutely in the grip of it because of Omicron now. and And the only way to finally get out of that is global vaccination, not you know, every man for himself, which is kind of where we are at the moment. But, you know, we will have to look at what kind of COVID recovery we want. And before COVID hit us, we all knew we needed a different kind of economy by 2030 if we were not going to eat or burn the planet. It's quite simple. But it's very difficult to moderate a speeding train while it's speeding. What COVID has in a way done for us is brought our entire economy and society to a shuddering halt, And it won't just bounce back. We're going to have to invest time, money and energy to rebuild our economy and our society. And therefore, we actually have the chance to think, well, what is it we want to rebuild? And to me, it is clear that the vision in Scotland is moving to a well-being economy, which is more environmentally friendly, more environmentally sustainable, looking at fairness, so that people have enough instead of some people having wealth they cannot spend in their lifetime, and other people having nothing. And that is, I mean, that was already there in Scottish government policy with the well-being framework, but it's very much has come to the fore over the last year. And I think that vision of a well being economy and a well being recovery from COVID, where we look at where do we need to be at the end of this decade and how do we get there so that we're a fairer, greener, more sustainable country, then that is where we want to go. And there is no possibility on the planet of us getting that from Westminster or getting that if we're still in the union. So to me, a well being economy. And a well-being approach to communities and how we live and how we work is only available with the powers of independence it's the clear blue water
0: now that takes us to the most obvious point of all when is this going to happen <laughs> since it's since it's so hugely desirable and i would agree with you since it's so hugely desirable you have put the case in such with such eloquence People watching and listening will be cheering you to the rafters, but they'll also be asking, as they have been tonight, where is it going to happen, Philip?
1: Well, obviously, I mean, I would, uh, I would definitely be hoping that we will manage to do it next year. Um, I think that what people need to still realise is the challenge we face isn't actually Boris Johnson, because the decision on having a referendum And and people say, well, let's just go off and do our own thing. But even after a referendum, if we did our own thing and we vote yes, but the Westminster government is unwilling to negotiate in any fashion at all, then you're still stuck for years and years in limbo, maybe going through the courts. Our problem is that almost half the adult population of Scotland do not have faith in their own country. That is our issue. It's an issue of belief. Now, as an Irish person and Irish people believe in their own country, no matter what's happening with it, and the Scots have delivered so much of the modern world. I just look on in shock that so many people don't have confidence in a country that is a third of the the landmass, that has so much of the marine energy potential, not just of the UK, of Europe. Has such fantastic universities, has one of the most highly educated populations in Europe. And yet we still have the, oh no, we couldn't. We, we need to just stay here and, and maybe maybe Westminster will give us a bit of money. And what we've seen in COVID right now, the inability of our First Minister to reintroduce furlough, to support the businesses that, that are impacted by the current Omicron crisis is because we do not have power over our own resources. That's what we need to change.
0: I think most people watching and listening would agree completely with that. And they would also agree with your point about lack of confidence. But they would also say, but that's a leadership issue. People run your business. I've run businesses. And, and the fact of the matter is, you expect the leader to say, okay, these are our issues. This is how we're going to address them. And this is a big issue, right? There are councillors at Westminster. People, I think, are entitled. say to the SNP, now look guys, okay, bearing all these points in mind, and also bearing in mind uh, all the points about how necessary it is, what are we going to do, right? Where's the route map? How's it going to happen? When's it going to happen? And right now there's, I'm not a member of the SNP, so I can say this with complete freedom, when I look at it, I see a vacuum. I don't see leadership, no disrespect to anyone here, I don't see leadership, I see a vacuum. And I think a lot of people feel the same. Which well, I think?
1: I, well, no, I don't, because okay. I think you have to recognise the the impact that COVID has had. People go, why have you wasted five years or, or whatever mm-hmm. it is? Well, I'm sorry. In 2015, when I was elected, we just had a referendum, which we lost. So we didn't stand on the basis of independence. We stood on being a stronger voice for Scotland in Westminster. In 2017, The First Minister demanded a Section 30 after the report, Scotland's place in Europe, was chucked out after about six weeks and said, we want a referendum. Theresa May countered with a snap election, we lost 40% of our MPs. We therefore could not claim a mandate on that election that we had rising support for independence in Scotland. That didn't change until the 2019 election when we suddenly went back up. And reclaimed so many of those seats. So that was the first time that we were on a rising tide and could say the support for independence in Scotland is high. We demand a referendum. And the First Minister in January 2020 said exactly that. And then COVID hit. And anyone who's on here who thinks that people who are not, you know, literally mired activists on the constitutional question want to even hear from you at the doorstep you're deluding yourselves. People are thinking about COVID. And if you look at 2020, the First Minister got support for independence to 58%, not by talking about it, not by declaring a campaign, but because people could clearly see she was doing her darndest to take us through the COVID pandemic as safely as possible. And in actual fact, that is as important now as it was in 2020. People are working behind the scenes. And I totally agree with you that there will be a need to be coming out with, you know, here's the bits that will be easy, here's the bits that will be difficult, but it will be worth it. Because in future, we will not have a government of a neighbouring country that can drag us out of a, a, a single market, that can put nuclear weapons on our soil, or who can remove financial welfare support to the poorest people in our society without us being able to do anything about it. Okay. And that's it, what it's about.
0: Good. It sounds to me like there's a white paper being prepared somewhere, which is... Which um, is somewhere.
1: <laughs> you're, now, you're getting above my pay grade. I'm down the road, not up the road.
0: But uh, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. You've given us a whole hour of your time. Thanks for joining us.
1: Stay safe.